0: Welcome to SBME Interfaces. Our goal with this show is to introduce you to the people that interface with biomedical engineering from students and faculty to staff and industry and everyone in between. BME is a broad field that encompasses so many different perspectives, journeys, skill sets and backgrounds and we are excited to share them all with you.
1: Today we are interfacing with Bugu. He's an associate professor in the Faculty of Law and the Katz Research Fellow in Health Law and Science Policy at the University of Alberta. He's a recipient of many awards, including the Confederation of Alberta Faculty Association Distinguished Academic Early Career Award, that's a mouthful, and he became a Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation Fellow in 2020. Uh, he holds a doctorate in law from University of Toronto, a Masters of Law from University of Alberta, and undergraduate degrees in law from University of Benin, Nigeria and Nigerian Law School. His work is focused broadly on the ethical, legal and societal implications of novel and emerging biotechnologies and associated research. He has been involved in many prominent national and international biotechnology policymaking activities and writes and comments frequently in popular press on matters related to impacts of biotechnology, science on society. Welcome, Ubaka.
2: Thank you, great to uh, be with you guys.
0: Uh, so I'm I'm really excited to to speak with you. I have uh, I have uh, researched you a ton uh, in preparing for this uh, this interview. So uh, for me, one of the most interesting things is the these last 14 months, they've exposed tons of broken systems, instability in systems across so many sectors and fields, and not to mention a lot of hard truths that everybody needs to be facing right now. So how has this impacted your work as an academic, as a lawyer, as an advocate?
2: Uh, much like everyone else, it's it's had um, a massive impact, and I think the the biggest impact has been that has shifted um, me and my work away from the things I normally do to focusing on how the pandemic affects uh, health policy and healthcare in general. Uh, and I think it's very difficult uh, at this time not to be. To stay unconcerned about what's going on around us, especially for someone like me, given my interest in the field that I work in, uh, it became uh, absolutely uh, critical uh, for me to to shift my work and and how I disseminate that work towards uh, helping keep the the public informed about about health policy matters. I also have a background in in uh, the history of vaccination. That's what I did for my PhD. Huh. Uh, uh, plus, I I study emerging biotechnologies, and as as you know, that's been uh, critical in in pandemic management in terms of the development of these vaccines. Uh, But also some of the issues that uh, were in many ways ignored uh, prior Mm -hmm. to this pandemic, things around uh, social uh, inequities and uh, social determinants of health and how we ignore that, things around global uh, justice Uh, and fairness in terms of the distribution of the benefits and burdens of biotechnology. All of those things came to the fore in this pandemic. They became front and center in terms of how we think about uh, who's bearing the burden of the pandemic, as well as who uh, stands to benefit from the discoveries, uh, especially the health uh, biotechnology discoveries, like vaccines that we now have to try to counter the pandemic. So on both sides, in terms of the benefits and the burdens, there's a ton of issues that have come up that fit right into my expertise. So it's, it's a shift for me, but not a radical shift. Uh, these are issues that I've always been interested in. Uh, I, I will say more, it's more of a, uh, an opportunity to then concentrate on just talking about those issues, but also helping the public uh, and policymakers to some extent understand how to navigate these issues.
0: Has there been any specific big takeaway for you in terms of those opportunities? Like you're like that right there. I think this is what we should focus on.
2: Uh, how we keep making the same mistakes over and over again—that's yeah. the big takeaway <laughs> for me. Um, and I, I think I think we're doomed to that kind of, sort of cyclical uh, failure when it comes to to dealing with things like this. Pandemics are not new. Disease uh, outbreaks uh, on a global scale are certainly not a new event, and and It is surprising to me that even with advancements uh, in health technology, in healthcare, given uh, the state of research today uh, uh, on all of of these things and how technically advanced we are, we still seem to be making the same mistakes. Many of the problems that surfaced in this pandemic can be resolved by putting in place uh, systems, structures and policies to make sure they don't happen. Uh, In fact, the, the WHO, uh, as you may know, commissioned an independent inquiry into how the pandemic was handled. Uh, that was chaired by the, the former president of uh, Liberia, uh, and they the just released their report. and The conclusion was: we we could have prevented this if we actually learned from our mistakes, if we learn from past pandemics, if we put processes in place, systems in place to to prevent it. Things uh, like, for example. Having systems that that uh, monitor the 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 likely outbreak of zoonotic diseases, you know, uh, uh, having those systems in place in, in many of the hotspots where we know diseases come from would have been very uh, helpful. But as you may have heard, the United States uh, closed down one of those centers uh, in in China just before uh, this happened. So so I think that for me has been the big takeaway, just um, how we tend to not learn from my mistakes. Uh, the other big takeaway has been how um, governance is central to how we survive a crisis like this.
0: Um,
2: even if we have systems in place and policies in place, we need to have good governance uh, that goes along with it. Uh, and we need to be able to uh, uh, you know, have persons who manage those systems who can uh, use the right mechanisms, apply science when, where science is needed uh, and be able to sort of balance all the factors, the complex factors that go into managing a pandemic. And I think there there's been, as we've seen uh, deep contrasts in governance styles in different regions uh, and that has affected outcomes in terms of uh, success or failure with, with the pandemic. The other thing too is I think that we have a crisis uh, the other big takeaway is that we have a crisis in terms of uh, trust in science, science communication, and and how science uh, attunes itself to addressing the issues of global justice and inequity that I talked about before. So many complex problems. I, I mean, these three things that I mentioned, trust in science, science communication, and science as a, as a tool for achieving global justice and and uh, fairness you could spend you could do three podcasts on uh, on, on those topics are <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> massive topics but but it, I, I've, I've come to realize how science is intimately tied to um, successful outcomes uh, in in terms of things like this and how if we don't handle the science right or we don't handle the communication of science right or the we, we reach a situation where people don't have trust in scientists and in the science that they that they, that they produce or develop, then, you know, we might as well just close shop and, and go away because uh, we're not going to achieve much in terms of success.
1: Mm-hmm. So taking a step back Mark, and learning a little bit more your journey, what led you to pursue law and then to become an academic?
2: <laughs> Omar, oh I can't believe I can still remember what led me to pursue law. I never <laughs> wanted to become a lawyer, actually. Um, I, I grew up in Nigeria uh, and... the the time to make a decision about what you want to be in life uh, happened too early. Uh, In Nigeria, you have to make that decision after high school uh, Mm -hmm. because law is a professional course, as everyone knows, but you go into law school directly from high school. You go into everything directly from high school. And I think I was 16 or 17 at a time, and certainly not uh, a time when you should be making decisions about what you want to be in life. (laughs) <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I, I remember having a conversation with my dad where uh, that question was asked, and I, I think I said something along the lines of, "I I want to study classics." Um, I didn't even know what classics was at the time. It just sounded very cool. Uh, (laughs) and he said well you you know you should probably think about not doing that because you're going to probably die poor (laughs) he should the classics which is funny because he's a he's an english uh slash history uh teacher he teaches high school (laughs) um uh, i suppose he felt you know i'm poor you don't have to be poor so so uh it was then a choice between um engineering or medicine or something. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not going to go for that. How about law? Uh, law came up. I'm like, sure, let's let's go with law. So that's how I went to law school. I went to law school at 17 years of age. Uh, not entirely sure why I was there. And, you know, as you as you get you know, involved in something, you start to pick up on the culture, the language, uh, and then it starts to make sense to you. I have never really considered why I became anything. Uh, I think through life, I've just sort of gone from one thing to the other, just because, you know, that's what I now have skills for and I'm trained for. Uh, and I don't really stop to ask myself that question, but that, that's that's how I became a lawyer. <laughs> that's, that's my journey to becoming a lawyer. There's no so, so no grand plan or no, you know, when I was five, I knew I was going to be a lawyer. It just happened by accident, really. And an academic, was that a... Ah, uh, with academics. So after I became a lawyer, um, I was successful in law school uh, in, in, in academically successful. And I think um, when that happens, you sort of start to get the sense that that might be one way to apply your skills. You know, if you kind of, if you actually understand the subject enough mm-hmm. to be able to do well uh, in the exam, I suppose you could teach it too. Um, but that again was just the fact of growing up in a country where nothing is certain. Uh, it's difficult to get a law job in Nigeria. Uh, and after two years of trying, I finally landed a job, and when I started you know, in a big law firm uh, in the in Lagos, the, the major city uh, mm. in Nigeria. But it was a difficult job. It was the kind of thing where you had to wake up in the morning, like around 5 a.m. to get ready for work, and then you have to navigate traffic, get to work at about 9 o'clock, and be there till like 10 p.m. And, uh, you know it wasn't all, all the glamorous stuff you see on TV about law wasn't really manifesting in my life. So mm. at some point I just thought to myself, well, I have the credentials for it. I can actually convincingly say to someone, I want to be an academic based on my undergraduate uh, law degree. Uh, and so I just decided to make the move. Again, it wasn't something that you know was ordained. I, it was just frustrations from the job I was in. So I decided to apply to a law school in Nigeria Uh, they accepted me for the job, which is a very difficult thing to get in Nigeria. It's in in, anywhere in the world, it's difficult to get an academic job. I got an academic job there, uh, that didn't turn out to be as exciting as I thought it was, even though it was less stressful than being a lawyer. And then I thought maybe I could get a master's degree. Uh, and so I applied to the university of Alberta and other universities, even UBC, uh, gave me admission at the time. Uh, but a friend I had told me that, uh, Edmonton was warmer than Vancouver. <laughs> I, I, that person I it, lied to you. Yeah, I don't know if it, it, either the person was ignorant or uh, yeah. it was a practical joke of some kind, but I I, <laughs> I somehow ended up uh, in Edmonton uh, for a master's degree, uh, after which um, I met Tim Carfield and started working with Tim Carfield and then thought I'd go get a PhD. And that's how I am now an academic. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> um I, that's a, I, I like that thread though just kind of going with it. Um, so it, what really gets me uh, interested too is from all of this like the legal philosophy and health law and all this stuff, now you are uh, you're deeply involved in national and international biotechnology policy making activities. Can you tell us about that process and like what it entails?
2: Sure. So uh, I did my master's in legal philosophy actually. Um, at the time I did my master's I had I don't have any science background. Uh, I don't have a background in health. I actually didn't know there was a thing called health law when I did that. Uh, After I finished my master's degree, um, I interviewed for a job at the University of Alberta uh, Law School to teach legal research and writing. And I didn't get it. But someone on the committee uh, felt aggrieved by that. The person felt I was the best candidate and wasn't happy that I didn't get it. Uh, so that person took my CV and gave it to Timothy Carfield, um, who I'm sure a lot of people know. Uh, he's mm-hmm. very popular. <laughs> uh, so I, I met with Timothy Caulfield and uh, uh, we had like a 10 minute chat and I, we just we just hit it off. Um, I think we talked about the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> we had like a debate about the Beatles or uh, the Beach Boys, who was better. Uh, and he said, okay, sure, come, come work for me. Uh, and he had a grant at the time that was a stem cell network grant uh, to look at ethical, legal and social issues around stem cell research. And that was my first foray into the world of health law and science policy, uh, working on that grant. But I became really intrigued by it. Uh, and I, after working with Tim for about three years, I decided to pursue a, a doctorate in the field of health law. But the thing about working with, with Tim uh, and the rest of the team at uh, the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta, is that uh, our work uh, is not focused on just uh, uh, studying issues and publishing in peer-reviewed journals? We kind of think of it the same way that that um, you can think of sort of the the bench-to-bedside approach uh, mm. in in uh, research and development uh, around what you guys do. So it starts with you know you get a grant to study an issue, you you then uh, Uh, Study the issue, and we use a variety of methods to study these issues. Um, We we use sort of black letter law approach. You know, you're reading books, you're analysing them. Uh, We use uh, empirical methods, so we do quantitative and qualitative analysis, uh, content analysis of of uh, newspapers. We do public opinion research to determine what public attitudes are around biotechnology. But more importantly, we also do a lot of uh, policy engagement work. So, this is where you bring together uh, uh, other academics, scientists, and policymakers in workshops or conferences. We actually consider that, consider that to be part of our, uh, our suite of tools that we use to study the issues we study. And those policy engagement activities uh, expose you very quickly to the community, it exposes you very quickly to, to scientists working in the field. Who you learn a lot from about what they actually do. Uh, there's, a, there's a cross-pollination and, and, and cr- collaboration that happens in that process. It introduces you to policymakers, uh, it gets you into the right rooms, uh, and, and in doing that, uh, I think the process just organically evolves into uh, involvement in national and international policy making. Uh, because it's a model, it's a tool that we use in our toolbox to, to, solve, uh, to research and solve problems, uh, it becomes inevitable that at some point uh, you will take it outside of your of your lab, so to speak, at the at the U of A, uh, and then go into you know places like you know meeting rooms in Ottawa, uh, meeting rooms in Toronto, in 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 uh, Vancouver, and internationally. Uh, and so it's evolved that way. It's become it's always been part of what we do, uh, and it's always uh, uh, it, it it's always featured very strongly in our work. Many of my papers are. Uh, papers that flow from those kinds of activities. Uh, and so I don't see it as something I necessarily uh, do separately from my work. It is it's one of the tools that I use uh, in my work. And one of the tools that we use at the Helpful Institute. And I, and I owe all of that uh, really to uh, Tim Caulfield's approach uh, to scholarship. The other piece I haven't mentioned is, you know, we also do a ton of uh, dissemination and translation work uh, where, we, where we do things like uh, Philosopher's Cafes to engage the public. We, we pu- for every article that we publish in the peer review journal, we do uh, a version of it for the, for the popular press through uh, op-eds um, or commentaries. Um, I'm very active on Twitter in, this, in terms of disseminating knowledge. Uh, I do a lot of public talks. Uh, you know, I've been at UBC uh, talking to scientists and to trainees. Um, uh, about the stuff that we do. Uh, And so there's there's that dissemination aspect as well, which I kind of see as sort of the bedside approach. So we've taken it from the Mm -hmm. bench to to the bedside, to the public. We also make sure that uh, we engage policymakers. We want to see a policy outcome from the work that we do. So there's this 360 approach that involves all of these elements that inevitably gets you into the kinds of rooms that you described as uh, international and national policymaking uh, activities
1: a very nice way of putting it. It makes it much clearer so you can bench to bed analogy for scientists and whatnot. Right. Yeah. Um, so teaching is part of your mandate as an academic. What's one course you really enjoy teaching and why?
2: Oh, well, wow. um, so I, I teach uh, a number of courses, uh, uh, including um, courses that are deemed sort of service courses. Uh, so courses you have to teach necessarily as an academic. Uh, But then, of course, there are some courses that I created. uh, uh, And I think I enjoy the ones that I created more, uh, obviously, because I created them. Uh, I teach a course called uh, Jurisprudence, uh, which is legal theory, but with a focus on law and science. Uh, and, And the focus of the class is on how law and science, as two very powerful institutions in society, how they interact, how they collaborate, and how they contest for authority, uh, for, for societal authority uh, when, when they interact and engage with one another. Uh, it's a course where I, I teach things like um, how do you do classification in law versus how you do classification in science? Uh, how, do we, how does law respond to novel and cutting edge technologies that raise uh, societal issues or social issues uh, or ethical and moral issues? Uh, I teach things around um, what do we do with questions of dystopia created by science. Uh, we, we look at things like uh, uh, genome editing and the implications of that, assisted reproduction and implications of that. Uh, we, we talk about uh, the science of the future and the science of the past. What can we learn from the science of the past? And what does that tell us about how the, 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 um, the institution of science functions? And does the way it functions have anything in common with the way law functions as an institution? Uh, one of the things I like, I talk about in the classes about how science is uh, forward looking and based on the idea of revision, uh, it revises itself. And you know, uh, a mistake in science is not necessarily fatal. Uh, somebody found out about a mistake and they can fix it uh, by doing studies to you know, make sure that they verify what's gone on and. Make, making sure that studies are can be replicated and things like that, and the law often is backward looking. Uh, just generally speaking, it tends to look back. Uh, there's something we call precedent in law, which is the mm-hmm. idea that if it's been decided before, you just simply ask what was there before. Uh, even though that, that, in many ways, is an overgeneralization, because the law also, at least in Canada, uh, the metaphor we use is that the law is a living tree, uh, and it's always growing and getting new branches and, and new flowers and new and new roots and all of that stuff. So, so this interaction between the two institutions, trying to define how they are and how they, they work with one another, I have to say it's my favorite course to teach uh, just because it's central to what I do. Uh, it's a course where um, what we do is think through the problems. I invite the students to think with me through the problems and issues and disengagement. Um, students uh, also get to uh, do fun things like, uh, you know, we, we, we watch, sometimes we watch a video, uh, so we watch Gattaca, for example, and, and comment on the implications of Gattaca, uh, mm-hmm. or watch, uh, um, um, uh, I forget this, uh, Black Mirror on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we watch episodes of Black Mirror and we talk about it as well, uh, but the students also get an opportunity to, to uh, write essays and reflections on their own thinking about how the student institutions uh, collaborate or contest for authority. So it's by far my favorite course to teach uh, because, you know, it's very, um, uh, it, it's, it relates to what I do and it, it is a course that uh, I, can, I, I own and I can revise and, and introduce new topics. Uh, I, I quite enjoy teaching it. But I, I, mean, I mean, I like teaching. I, I enjoy teaching every course that I teach but that one has to be my favorite if I have to pick one.
1: I would to take that course. That sounds right. yeah, it's <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. um, you you spoke about uh, the communication side of science, um, and uh, it's something that's deeply important to me. Uh, it's that's that's sort of my side of stuff. And you're really active on Twitter. Um, my it, what makes me curious about this though is um, when you bring those all those elements together, like the policymakers and and uh, into these workshops. How do you find um, uh, the sort of uptake from the policy side of things? Like, do you find that they're like deeply interested in it? Do you find that they're they're taking it on board? Like, how is that process?
2: Yeah, um, I have to say it's it's one of the best things about the work that we do. Um, it, the community is always very engaged and always uh, attentive to this. Um, Multidisciplinary, multi institutional context that we find ourselves in in these workshops. People actually come in there uh, with a willingness to do uh, three things, I think. The first is um, listen. The second is communicate in a language everyone can understand. And the third is to take something away from it and turn it into action. I have found that, you know, whether it's scientists or it's policymakers or it's us, ethicists and lawyers. Um, those are the terms of engagement, and it has worked very effectively each time we've used it. Uh, we we we've managed to get you know policymakers sometimes to, to author papers uh, where they where we take a stance on something or we provide recommendations. Um, even though by the nature of their work they tend not to want to do that, but sometimes you see them saying, you know, this is this is good stuff. This is stuff we think we can put our, our names on and and we can get behind or we at, at a minimum want to be acknowledged uh, as having participated in the process. These workshops that we've done have led to you know, uh, numerous sort of policy recommendations that I've, uh, I've had some uptake. Uh, you know, I, I, can, I can go into examples now, but we've had some success with policymakers taking this back and saying, you know, um, now here's the policy perspective based on what we've heard. Right? It may not be what we recommend, but at least they've considered what we recommended in reaching their own decision uh, as to what the policy should be. So, so it's been, I will say everyone comes to the table uh, with a willingness to listen, engage in, in a way that everyone uh, that can, can develop a common language, uh, but also take away something that allows us to feel like this has not just been a process of getting together Eating, you know whatever hotel breakfast uh, and, <laughs> and going for drinks so so yeah it's it's, it's it truly is um, for me a really great experience and a great way of doing work um, I don't know that I could work in any other field where that is not part of the deal uh, and I, I know a lot of academics who don't do that um, and, I, and I, I really think it's some a piece that we as academics should always consider. What is the uptake for our work and how can we engage those who can make it happen?
1: Mm-hmm. So I'll ask one more heavy-hitting question before we do a couple of light ones, because uh, sure. almost at <laughs> time. So putting sort of the lens of the School of Biomedical Engineering, we're relatively new, approaching four years. It's a very multidisciplinary, multifaceted field. So with your lens of what you do, what do you think some of the challenges we may face as we train the next generation of biomep engineers and trying to push innovation coming to the Canadian, let's say, ecosystem?
2: Whew, that's a tough one. I, but I've thought about this a lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> got to answer it in a few words. So I, I think the biggest challenge is that we're not training scientists yet in a truly multidisciplinary environment. Mm-hmm. And we're not training them for the challenges of the future. I'll explain very quickly. So on the first thing, we're we're not training them in a a truly multidisciplinary environment. Uh, It is still the case that there's a heavy focus on on the science science side in many of these uh, uh, institutions like like yours. uh, There's there's still heavy focus on the science side. There's no true uh, sort of multidisciplinary environment where you have scientists working alongside alongside clinicians and ethicists and regulators, and you know, there's no sort of world lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is still very much a science lab. And I think it's important that we do create a kind of world lab environment. The scientist of the future is gonna have to grapple, especially if you're working in, in health tech technology, you're gonna have to grapple with things that are far beyond your expertise and far beyond the work that you do. And those things are front and center you know, you might not be able to get a grant because you're unable to show an economic analysis uh, of what that's going to lead to in the future. You might you might not be able to get a grant because you're unable to show the ethical implications of your work. Um, you you may not be able to sort of understand how to communicate your work uh, or to move it from from the, the basic research stage to, to the preclinical to clinical stage. You may not even know what at all the regulations say about any of that stuff until you actually confront it. And I don't think that that's okay. I think uh, every scientist should... Uh, have some training in all of these aspects. And the only way to do that is to actually create labs that are truly world labs that represent the real world out there of what the scientists will face. The second part is I, I don't think we're preparing scientists for what I think I see as a, as a future that's global and not, not national or not focused on the problems of uh, uh, high income economies. Um, much of the coordinate science that has been done in the world today is done in high income economies. Uh, but many of the problems that need to be solved are in low and middle income countries. Uh, and, and so you then find a situation where scientists keep working on the same kinds of things that just uh, happen in high income. You know, there's too many cancer studies, essentially is what I'm saying. Um, and, and I think that's a problem because the, the, the world of the future, as we've seen with this pandemic, is very global. The problems are gonna be global if you solve them in one part of the world and you don't solve them in another, it's, it's just uh, you know a ticking time bomb. It's, it's coming to you eventually. But then there's the justice and fairness implications. What does it really say about us that we keep solving, we keep developing the developed nations, uh, and we're doing nothing really about how to take science to to both to lower middle income countries uh, and to improve lives in lower middle income countries. So I think we need to do something about that. And so I think the labs that we have in in high income economies, in places like Vancouver and Alberta, should be labs that uh, account for the global distribution of of disease and the global distribution of access to science and its benefits. Sure
1: it's
2: How you achieve that is a different question, but that's
1: <laughs> you need to flip the mindset of impact is not monetary impact; it's lives that you impact. Right. We can do yeah. that. We'll go along.
0: Um, okay, so uh, uh, you said that the, uh, the, the the key decisions that uh, you had to make back when you were uh, in Nigeria were when you were 17 years old. Normally, we ask, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? So I'm going to ask, what would you tell your 17-year-old self?
2: Uh, uh, do it all the same again, the same way again. <laughs> I, I actually, I'm very happy with the my life turned out. It, I mean, it was difficult in parts. Um... But I, I'll, I'll just say, you know what? You just stay stay on the same path. Um, the one thing I, I wish I, was, I got to sooner uh, is my sort of 40 year old consciousness. Mm. Um, because there are many things you, on the way to growing up that you pick up that are not you. There are things that you're picking up because you're being influenced by the environment you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I was, for example, I wish I was less religious sooner. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm an atheist. I wish I became an atheist sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish um, I got to the realization that that you can't think about societal welfare from an individual perspective sooner. Um, I wish I got to the realization that the best way to make policies to think about people on the margins uh, and not those who already have sooner. I wish mm-hmm. I gained the voice sooner. Um, I, I wish the opportunity to challenge systems came sooner. <laughs> uh, so it's a matter of, it's, it's, it's a temporal thing. It's, it's a time thing, but mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to stay the same. I just wish I had, I got to it sooner because I, you know, I mean, life is finite, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and there's so much change that needs to happen. And, uh, now I'm I'm facing change when, you know, I'm also facing, you know, two kids who are learning online. Uh, you know, I can't be on the streets, campaigning for things as much as I want to, because I have to deal with like life as it happens, you know, driving children to things and, you know, worrying about a mortgage and all whatnot. I wish I had like in my twenties, I wish I had those realizations. Uh, early enough to be able to really exhaust myself uh, in every way I can. We're mm-hmm. trying to bring change to the world and, and not be doing it at a time when, you know, I literally have to feed mouths and uh, not mine and care about uh, mm-hmm. you know, other people who uh, are part of my family. So that would be the only thing but otherwise I think it's been it's a life that's been for me more decent uh, than most people ever have. So I'll leave it the same way again.
0: It's funny. It, uh, regardless of how, how quickly or how long it took you to get here, we're we're glad that you're here.
2: I'm oh thank sure. you. Sure that's you very you sweet. are
0: you are you are making an impact. And more voices like sweet. that make more change. Yeah.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs>
0: Um, one more quick question then. So, uh, uh we can do quickly two parts if we, if we have the time with you, uh, is, are there any initiatives or particular projects, uh, that you're overseeing right now that you're really excited about and you think we should get excited about too. And then last but not least, where can people find you online?
2: Okay. So you can find me online on Twitter. That's the only uh, social media that I have. Uh, <coughs> I'm at Obaka Oboago. So that's my name, uh, my names, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of initiatives, I have two. The first is, uh, I am involved in, a, or I'm essentially came up with this program to get uh, racialized law students uh, hired into uh, internships and uh, what we we'll call articling jobs in law. Um, law schools tend to do very poorly on placing racialized students. Uh, and, um, you know, this was something I was always aware of, but. They're also very bad at collecting statistics so you don't actually know what the numbers are but you know in, in this sort of period of reckoning that we're having racial reckoning that we're having students have reached out to me and they're more sort of uh forthcoming about what issues they're facing and i've come up with a program uh that i hope to i hope will be successful i'm um, trying to sort of get the law society of alberta and my faculty to support it if if that works i'll be really really excited and i think you guys should be excited about it too because it's it's about increasing diversity in the legal profession, mm-hmm. which I think is good for everyone. The second one is um, something I've been thinking about uh, a way of, I, I, I want to work on this project, and my sabbatical is coming up in July. And one of the projects that I have in mind is a project to catalog uh, biotechnology policies and programs in sub Saharan Africa, uh, and if possible, Africa generally, just to get a sense mm-hmm. of who's working on what, what are they working on, what are the policies on the ground. Uh, if you were to sort of develop a biotechnology industry, a massive one similar to the one you have in in high income economies, what are the countries to think about uh, and what kind of policies do they have in place uh, to enable all the aspects from bench to bedside, uh, all the aspects of biotechnology research and development. So I'm very excited about that. Um, I was hoping that I'll be able to sort of travel and situate myself uh, somewhere in Africa, where I can maybe have better access to that kind of information. Uh, but we'll see what happens. Uh, what I, I think I might be able to do during this sabbatical is to actually get it off the ground and but we'll see how far, how far it gets. And I'm really excited about that as well. Uh,
1: you're, you're a busy man, that's an understatement. Um, <laughs> very thankful that you took the time with us, Ubaka. I've been following you closely, I've met you a few years back and it's always a pleasure. And hopefully we can see more of you. And again, good luck with
2: everything. Thank you. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll, we'll, I'll see more of you guys. Um, I'm sure I'll be in Vancouver at some point when we can travel again. But this has been great. Thank you, guys.
0: Thank you.